DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. PK, we got people tweeting at us. Later this hour, we'll get to all the tweets. Uh, here's a good one for you. Jazz Foam Finger, at Jazz Foam Finger. Why, when Jokic has 5,000 more than four minutes left, did the Jazz not go after him and foul him out? I didn't hear anyone address this directly, and there's multiple post-game feeds at the same time, so, you know, I, I know I missed some stuff, but uh, I assume it's because they thought that even if he did commit it, the refs weren't going to call it and weren't going to foul him out. And then in the meantime, you take yourself out of doing whatever you do that you want to do best because you're trying to do this and go at one guy. Okay. Or they didn't know he had 5,000 and they just whiffed. I assume one of the 10 coaches knew he had 5,000. So I'm thinking they're just not getting calls down the stretch. Yach and I were just laughing in the break about Gobert going nuts because he thought he got fouled when he got stripped by Plumley, And a little while later, he's down at the other end of the court basically saddling Jokic up and just riding him all the way to the hoop. I mean, I was basically laughing about living him like, geez, Rudy, Rudy, how many times are you going to foul him on this possession? But they didn't call one of them. They didn't call anything. So right. at this point, you know, just play and, you know, unless someone really gets hammered while they're shooting, they're probably not calling it. There aren't going to be a lot of illegal screens and traveling violations called. Okay, yeah, I agree with you. Let's let them play. You stayed Iceman at Jack Dunbar 10. Jack Dunbar. Sounds like a movie star's name. He's Jack Dunbar. When are we going to make it back to a Western Conference final so we don't have to look at the statue years? I want more to be able to reference when talking to fans of other teams. Conference finals have been uh, 13 years now, right? And NBA finals going on 22. Don't know the answer to that. I would think the conference finals are not necessarily that far away. NBA finals, no idea. You're going to be the best in the West. At that point, you know, are you the best in the league? There haven't been that many teams from the East winning it. LeBron's gotten it done. And Kawhi, and they're now both in the West. Well, you know, a new uh, season is like a new school year. You know, you just have to build it up and see what you got at the beginning and then work hard to get where you want. So right now, this season is over. I can't forecast next season or certainly the season after that yet. Got to see what the rosters look like and what the schedule is going to be and all that stuff. So much more information needs to be gathered before we talk about any of that. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. It's time to bring in Andy Bailey. Covers the Utah Jazz and the NBA for Bleacher Report and for Forbes Sports. Andy, good morning. Morning. How are you guys? We are doing well. Game 7 is in the books. What went wrong? What you, would you have changed? Easy enough to say if Conley's last shot goes in, it's a totally different vibe, obviously. But there's some other stuff. This should be tweaked. Your takeaways from Game 7. Yeah, I, this this might sound like a really obvious answer, but I don't think there's much Utah could have done differently this series. Like coming into it, I thought Denver would win comfortably because I was um, you know, I was in the camp that thought the loss of Boyan Bogdanovich would just be something that, that Utah could not recover from. Um, then Donovan Mitchell goes out and averages almost 40 points a game for the series, so I think uh, that there's actually a pretty optimistic take on this series, and that's that I, I think we saw another step towards superstardom for Donovan Mitchell. Um, Rudy Gobert was solid. There were there were stretches of this series where he really impacted the best offensive center in the league. Um, 
there were there were some really encouraging moments between those two players specifically, and we know what a you know huge story the drama between those two was throughout the shutdown, and it looked like they were on the same page. Um, I think the fact that they took Denver to seven games without their second leading scorer um, and really their best floor spacer was was quite an accomplishment for Utah. Of course, they would much rather be moving on and. Like you said, that Mike Conley shot was halfway down, and, and there's a much different vibe um, to the season if, if that does go all the way down. But I think all in all, it was a great performance from the Jazz in the first round, and uh, there, there's a lot of good takeaways from it. Okay, yeah, I could agree with all that. What do you think needs to happen to get a little bit better, though? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, they they did such a good job. I still think they had one of the best off seasons in the NBA last year. I, I think they covered just about every need that they had. They've got a bunch of switchy wings, which I think is really important in today's NBA. Maybe maybe you get a couple more guys who are defensive specialists like Royce O'Neal um, that you can you can spare Donovan Mitchell for more difficult matchups. And again, this is going to seem like a, a really reductive answer, but at this point, I I think to get to the next tier for Utah is just continued development for the two stars. Um, I don't, I don't think they're a team that I'm trying to think if they should, you know, go for a third star or something like that. I, I don't really know if that's the model for team building in today's NBA. I think the jazz have two legitimate stars uh, at the top of the roster in, in Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert. If Mitchell, you know, he's obviously not going to play like he did in this first round throughout an entire season, but if he's closer to that level um, next season, that takes him to to another tier. I think maybe you have to at least explore the possibility of moving Mike Conley. That's probably easier said than done. Um, he's on an expiring contract, but it's a it's a big deal, so maybe that's not super easy to move. If he performs like he did for much of this series and, and for stretches of the season, he's good too but when I look at that backcourt with Mitchell and Conley I just I can't shake the the thought that they're just really small um and defensively that causes a lot of problems and we and we've seen a lot through the first few years of Mitchell's career what he can do when he's actually the point guard um so I'm I'm kind of walking in circles here but maybe the answer is you find a way to shift Mitchell to point guard full-time hope he continues on the trajectory that he's on um and then just, you know, internal development is, is maybe the key. So this will sound harsh, but I think there's some truth to it, and I think it's a reason for optimism, but it starts with negativity. For all the good things Rudy does, and he does a lot of them, there was a percentage of stuff that was just wrong, and I think he cut that BS out. I think... The showdown with Donovan, the COVID stuff, the, I think he decided to focus on what was most important. The fact that he said he wanted more shots early in the season, not good. The fact that they were running two post-ups per game for him in the first five to six possessions was essentially two wasted possessions. Now, mm-hmm. I know it's wasted at the start of a regular season game. I get that. But there's, there's an underlying attitude with him that they felt they had, that Quinn felt he had to do that. It seemed like that all went away. It seemed like he went to the dunk spot, was less involved, didn't have to have handoffs, didn't have to touch the ball. He's on the baseline behind the glass, but there was zero attitude about that, which is a huge positive. And he decided to try and dominate a game from there last night. And the fact he went for 
uh, 19 points and 18 boards and had seven offensive boards. I know some of that is the energy you bring to a desperate Game 7 situation. But the fact that he decided to apply himself that way, I think there's a chance he applies himself that way going forward. I think that makes him a better player and a more dominant force in the NBA. Do you think he sees that? Because if he does, he'll stick with it, and that would seem to have huge upside for him personally and the team as a whole. But I'm just not 100% sure he sees that. Well, yeah, first of all, I think you're right. He he seemed laser-focused throughout that series. Um, You know, Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell understandably got most of the credit, but there was a really good center battle in that series, too, between Gobert and Jokic. Um, And he, you know, I I agree with you. I think post-ups for him are essentially wasted possessions. Um, Oftentimes, him catching the ball at the free-throw line moving forward is, is kind of a wasted possession, too. He's a guy who can get big numbers just being around the rim, catching lobs, um, getting offensive rebounds. Like you said, I mean, he can still put up double-double after double-double and, and really impact the game offensively by doing that. At the same time, I've, I've kind of sympathized with Gobert uh, throughout this season because there, I, I do see a lot of times where he's wide open under the rim, jumping up and down, waving his arms. Um, and he knows, you know, if I, if I get this thing, I'm going to turn around and dunk it. And I think there are some solid excuses for the guards. You know, maybe they don't have a direct line of sight to him. Um, you know, sometimes he still, every once in a while, will kind of bobble the pass. And I, you can see frustration from guys like Mitchell and Ingles every time that happens. Um, so maybe, maybe I'm somewhere in the middle on this. But I, I agree with you in the sense that he doesn't, he doesn't need to be doing more offensively. He, he is an incredibly impactful offensive player. If he just sets those screens, rolls out the rim, and dunks when he catches the ball, um, I, I don't think it needs to be any more creative than that. That's that's the benefit of being seven foot two and, and pretty bouncy and having you know ridiculously long arms. You can have a great offensive impact without really having a ton of offensive skill. Um, and so, if he can embrace that to a to a fuller degree, and I think he has at points in his career, maybe his ascendance to all-star status has kind of made him think, well, I should be doing more all-star type things. But what made him so great is the acceptance of that, you know, very specific role. I think there's acceptance from him that's needed to do that. But I also think, um, you know, the guards are going to have to keep their eyes up. And if he's open, go ahead and get the dunk. I mean, it's, it's going to be one of the most efficient shots, even if you factor in the bobbles into the numbers, um, you know, the amount of points per possession that Utah gets when they go to an open Gobert under the rim is, is going to be greater than anything, save maybe free throws. Um, so there's a little give and take there, but I, I think you're right. I, I think acceptance of just, I'm, I'm, he needs to tell himself, I'm the best roller in the NBA. I'm the best offensive rebounding threat in the NBA, and I'm going to get big numbers off those two things. I'm going to be incredibly efficient with those two things, and uh, everything else will sort of take care of itself. How much left do you think Conley has? This season was really interesting um, for Mike Conley because there were stretches where it looked like, wow, this this was the perfect addition, and it happened in this series against the Nuggets. And those two blowout games over Denver, he was phenomenal. Um, and I think offensively there's, there's a better chance that he can be a positive impact type of player for the next few years on that end. But again... I think you put yourself at you're just starting at a disadvantage when you have a backcourt that small. Um, 
when they updated the heights before this season, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it I think it took Donovan Mitchell down to like six one. Mm-hmm. Um and his he offsets a lot of that with his wingspan and I think you can trust him on a lot of shooting guards. But if you've got him defending point guards and suddenly Royce O'Neal is on twos and Joe Ingles is, is guarding the three, matchups just become a lot easier with Mitchell at the one. When you have two guys who are six foot, six one, um, in, in Conley and Mitchell, as the rest of the league kind of gets bigger at the guard spots. I mean, there's been so much made over the last few years about how the game is getting smaller, and that's true for you know power forwards and centers to an extent. I, I think it's more you know they're adding skill than they're getting smaller. But at the same time, guard positions are getting bigger. It, it's kind of like both ends of the lineup are trending towards the middle. We're trending towards this positionless game. Um, and if you're taking on a team that has two six six guys in the backcourt, you you just have some natural matchup problems with Conley and Mitchell. And I think long term, you know, if if Mitchell is going to reach his ultimate peak, which I still think is, people have calmed down on the Dwayne Wade comparisons. Um, I still think maybe there's a hint of that. Maybe there's a hint of Damian Lillard. Um, you know, I wouldn't put either of those things past him, especially after watching this series. If he's going to reach that level, I think he does it as a one. Um, and, and obviously in Quinn Snyder's offense, you can do a lot of point guard type stuff from any position. But it's more important on the defensive end because they need to surround him with bigger guys who can guard multiple positions. Um, and they can sort of get back to the defensive identity that they had in the years leading up to this one. DJ and PK, we're joined right now by Andy Bailey, covers the Utah Jazz and the NBA for Bleacher Report and Forbes. Uh, I think you're spot on on your points about Conley. Uh, in this uh, playoff series, he played five of the seven games. He averaged 20 points, 19.8, but 20 points a game. He shot 48% from the floor and 51% from the three-point line and 87% from the free-throw line. It still had five assists a game. So it's not offense, it's defense. And the size matters. How much do you think that they coaches always want to tighten their rotation to six or seven guys because in short spurts those guys can take all the minutes? But the Jazz do have genuine depth issues. How much is that a problem? And how much does that have to be priority one? Yeah, that's that's. I mean, you asked me earlier, what can they do to get better? And that's probably the first thing to point to is, is finding somebody else you can really rely on off the bench. They hit a home run with that Dante Exum, Jordan Clarkson trade. I mean, that it, it seemed like kind of a no-brainer at the time, but it worked out better than I think any of us could have even imagined. I mean, he has fit so well there. But they could use, like I said just a minute ago, they, they could use a couple more you know, big, big-ish bodies uh, that they can throw at multiple wings. Royce O'Neal... I think Joe Ingles has this to an extent, too, but Royce O'Neal is really the, the main sort of switchable positionless defender that they have on the roster right now, and they could they could use maybe one more guy like that off the bench. I, I'm not sure there's anybody in development that's already on the roster that could be that. Um, Jarrell Brantley kind of has the height, but I believe it or not, I think his long-term future might be a sort of a playmaking five if he's going to stick in the NBA. Um so more switchy defenders could help. And, and these, these guys don't grow on trees, of course. I mean, if if there were a bunch of guys who could guard multiple multiple possessions and hit open threes like Royce O'Neal does, I mean, every team in the league is, is after those guys. So it's going to be easier said than done to get them. But, if yeah, if they could 
shore up that rotation a little bit off the bench, it would help. I mean, George Niang, I think, has been a good story this season. He's one of the best catch-and-shoot guys in the league. I, you know, every time he catches in the corner, you just kind of assume it's going to go in. But that's another, you know, huge defensive liability. Um, he, he works hard on that end, but he's just never going to have the foot speed to, to keep up with most NBA forwards and wings. So they could use a little bit more defense off the bench. It's, it's, it was really fascinating to see sort of the, uh, not the philosophy of the Jazz switch, but, but they really did go for more of a defense first team to an offense first team. I don't think they planned that. Um, it, it was just sort of the personnel that necessitated it. If, if they want to get to title contention, I, I think the next step is finding a couple guys who can really shore up the defense. Do you have any idea what the market would be for Jordan Clarkson? Good question. Um, it's incredibly difficult to predict how this offseason is going to go. Just, you know, we, we don't know what the cap's going to look like. Who knows how much not having fans for all these playoff games um, in the last, you know, two weeks of the regular season is going to impact the salary cap. What's a mid-level exception going to look like? Um, you know, if it if it comes in around where it was last season, I think a full mid-level exception was nine or ten million dollars a year. I would I would guess some team would be willing to go a little above that for Jordan Clarkson based pretty much on what he did in Utah. I mean, he he was off to a good start in Cleveland, but I, I think he showed things that he hasn't at any point in his career um, with Utah. He still had sort of a, you know, go-get-a-bucket mentality that he's had throughout his career, but it was a little bit more restrained in Utah, and I, I bet that's probably what a lot of people would look for from him. Can can he play within a system? And I think he proved that in Utah. Um, I, I You know, we just talked about depth. I, I think keeping Jordan Clarkson... It's, it's not going to be priority number one for the Jazz this offseason, but it should be pretty high. Um, his his impact was fantastic, and they need at least one guy coming off the bench who can get some shots, especially, you know, Donovan Mitchell can't play 48 minutes a game. Um, they need someone who can kind of carry the offense when uh, he's not out there. And, and Bogdanovich will do that, too, when he's back and healthy. Um, but that's this is a very long-winded way of saying I, I think he'll probably be, you know, Ten million to twelve million a year, something like that. But but again, the caveat is we have no idea what exceptions are going to look like. We don't know which teams love cap space, what the luxury tax line is. Um, all of this is going to be determined whenever they figure out what the cap's going to be. Andy Bailey joining us covers the Utah Jazz and the NBA for Bleacher Report and Forbes Sports. So the three, six, and four, five series both go seven games. Everything about the standings and the eyeball test told you those teams were all pretty evenly matched, and now the playoffs are underscoring that. But how close are those teams? And maybe it's just some of them, maybe it's all of them, maybe it's none of them. But how close are those teams to the top two in the West? Because that tells you how close you are to winning a title. Even if you go out in the first round, you might not be. There might not be that much separation. How close are they? How close are these second round series going to be? I think they're really close, honestly. I, I think the only team that was kind of in a different tier than the other seven was the Blazers. Um, Dal- I think, you know, the Clippers beat Dallas 4-2, to two, but I think that series was closer than that. Um, there's a good chance they would have won game one if Porzingis had been ejected, and then he goes on to miss two more games towards the end of the series, and there were still a lot of good, close, competitive games in that series. And I think whether it was Utah or Denver, uh, either one of those squads was going to give – the Clippers will run for their money. 
um, you know, I would pick the Clippers in either setting, and I, you know, I'll go ahead and pick them against Denver right now. But I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be shocked at all if Denver won. The the amount of talent in the West is just off the charts to the point that, yeah, there there were five, six, maybe even seven teams that I could see getting all the way to the finals from the Western Conference. So Utah is, you know, with that as the context, they're not far from contention. And as far as the Lakers go. Um, I could see them losing to the Rockets. I would again. I would pick the Lakers in a series between those two things, but with the variability that Houston can introduce to a game with all those threes, and they've got one of the best offensive players of all time in Houghton. Again, I wouldn't be shocked to see them win. I, I probably would be a little surprised to see OKC beat LA because there's. I, I'm just you know. <laughs> Every time OKC plays, I'm kind of waiting for them to turn into a pumpkin. This has been like a season-long Cinderella story for them, and I think they've been one of the most fascinating and entertaining teams to watch, but I still just think eventually this has got to go back to the team or at least close to the team we thought they'd be before the season started. Maybe they'll keep surprising me. Um, You know, I I thought Gallinari is one of the most underrated guys in the league for years, and CP3 obviously has a lot left in the tank, but I I would feel more comfortable with the Lakers in that series um, but again, one through seven in the West was just loaded this season. Um, really, really fun to watch. So <laughs> when we talked about Utah getting to the next tier, um, it's, it's baby steps at this point. It's a, you know, what about Bob? Um, can they, can they make one tiny little move to get there? I don't think they really need to do anything drastic at this point. Andy, we appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me guys.